This is Duke University. I have the honor tonight of introducing our fourth annual Leader in Social Entrepreneurship Award winner. Uh, this is Ami Dar. Uh, Ami Dar is the founder of Action Without Borders. And if uh, you know this organization, you probably know it by the name of the website and online community that they run, which is called idealist.org. Let me tell you a little bit about Ami and give you a sense of why uh, we have selected him uh, this year. Um, first of all, uh, he has many uh, wonderful characteristics, one of them being a global vision. Uh, it, it, social entrepreneurship is a global phenomenon. We're seeing it bubble up all around the world. Ami was born in Israel, uh, raised, I guess, in uh, Peru and Mexico. <laughs> Um, back to Israel to join the armed forces, uh, fought in the Lebanese war uh, back in uh, 1982. And uh, from what I've read in his biographies, that was a crucial event in his life. I exposed him to uh, serious issues of suffering and misery that he was able to see. Um, uh, certainly he saw uh, poverty as well in uh, Peru and Mexico as he was living there. And I think this planted a seed that uh, came to, to sprout uh, later. But one of the aspects we are uh, excited about is this global vision and, and a desire, a commitment to extend this idealist community uh, globally. And I think at this point, 165 countries maybe, or mm -hmm. could be more by now. That was the last number I saw. Um, so the global vision. Second thing is th that we find very intriguing and, and believe that um, we should see this as a role model, is that Ami has worked in multiple sectors. Um, and particularly, he's also worked in business. Uh, and may still be are still the president of uh, Aladdin Knowledge Systems, uh, which uh, in the US, uh, the US subsidiary of Aladdin Knowledge Systems, Aladdin is a, a Israeli-based uh, security software uh, information system. And uh, Ami had the opportunity to come here and open the US office, uh, which he did. Um, that wasn't enough. He was doing this around just a few years later. He was launching Action Without Borders, so it uh, seems running one organization isn't sufficient for him at a time. Um, but he wants to run multiple organizations and organizations, yeah, they, they cut across sector boundaries. So he has business entrepreneurial skills as well as social sector entrepreneurial skills, and, and that um, represents the kind of uh, social entrepreneurship that we want to uh, promote uh, here at Fuqua. We also uh, were attracted by the issue that he has targeted. The issue is one of bringing talent of folks who wish to make a difference in the world together with opportunities for making that difference. Uh, those of you who came earlier this year when we had Tom Tierney speak, Tom was the chairman of the Bridge Band Group, recently did a study on uh, talent deficit in the U.S. nonprofit sector, just looking at the U.S., projected a need for some uh, 600,000 leaders over the next uh, decade for that sector. If you think about this as a worldwide issue, the need for talent is enormous. A lot of people focus more on capital. Talent is even more crucial than capital. If you have money but can't find the right talent, the right individuals to lead or serve the organization, you won't be effective. Idealist has become an incredibly vibrant community for people looking for opportunities 
to find those opportunities. And again, what, the, the numbers are fairly astounding. Uh, almost 50,000 organizations now, it's uh, upper 40s anyway, uh, and something like a quarter of a million members. A lot of uh, member-driven content, a lot of organization-driven content. Organizations can post jobs, volunteer opportunities, can interact with folks. It's, it's a fascinating pathway and, and continues to try to think about ways to innovate that. I think when, when it was first started, the idea was to have uh, uh, these contact centers in communities um, and realized that the internet might be a better place to start in a platform for getting off, but still very sensitive to the fact that you need uh, some kind of place-based uh, activity as well. And, geographically focused activity, and I think the model is, is powerful, innovative, and in addressing one of the most important issues facing the sector. Um, and the other piece of it is that we like that it's using cutting-edge technology to do this. Uh, it's it's a, a powerful innovation um, that uh, we, we think has some staying power. Interestingly, I mean, if you think about the economic model behind it, again, could be you can correct me on this, but free to be a member? Free to join, be part of the community. There's some charge for job posting. And I, I don't know, is that your primary source of revenue? I think it is, and, but that generates, its, and it's only like 50 bucks or something to post a job on this site, but generating a uh, million dollars a year of revenue to help uh, fuel and fund this, a large portion uh, of the income of this venture. So a very uh, creative and interesting business model behind this uh, as well. You put all those pieces together, and I think you can understand why we selected Amidar this year uh, as our fourth annual social uh, entrepreneurship leader. Um, so Amidar, I'm going to turn it over to you. So. Wait, you might, you might regret the clapping. Wait a second. Um, so can you hear me okay? Just fine. So Greg, thanks so much. I think I want to take you with me wherever I go. That was very nice. <laughs> and I was trying to think, I've been around for 45 years now, I think, and I've never been called a cherry. That was amazing. At the beginning, you said, never happened before. And thanks, Beth, for, for having me here and um, Kate for organizing this. So today, I, I want to do, I guess, um, I want to talk about three things. One is uh, how I got into this work and, and why I do this. Then a little bit about this business nonprofit piece, because I came from a business and I'm doing nonprofit work and trying to bridge those two uh, sectors pretty much every day, and the differences among them a little bit. And then lastly, um, just a bit about a few minutes about where I think the world uh, is going next in a small way, and idealist too and, and within that. So the, the how I got into this, I was thinking in the airplane today coming down about um, entrepreneurship and, and genetics, because I was thinking about my, my grandparents. My grandparents were from Greece, Turkey, Russia, and Poland. And then they all went from those four countries to Argentina, where my parents were, were born. I was thinking that my grandmother on my mother's side was an entrepreneur. I didn't think about this for a long time. She opened the first uh, jeans factory in Argentina. At least that's a story in the family that she brought jeans to Argentina uh, in the 40s. And as a kid, I had this image of all these people walking around in jeans in Argentina and that my grandmother was responsible. So that's one, one memory. The more exotic memory that I have sort of, of entrepreneurship is that my grandfather, my dad's side, was more of a social entrepreneur he brought the first illegal lottery to his city in Argentina. That was, that was a sort of big deal. And the story there was that the, the police once in a while would come to the house and sort of raid this thing. And my grandmother had to rush up and try to flush all the uh, little tickets down the toilet or something, basically, so they wouldn't catch them. So these were my, my two entrepreneurial sort of uh, memories as a kid. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so, so I was born in Israel. And then when, when I was uh, small, my, my parents went off to Peru and Mexico for different reasons. 
and spent the next 10 years growing up in Latin America. And there I think, you know, can't really understand why, but I was a very precocious uh, kid in terms of sort of social stuff, like I was seven or eight years old. And I didn't understand why, why certain things in the world were, they, were, they, were the way they were. So for example, you know, being seven years old in Mexico or Peru, sorry, and um, not understanding why, why other kids were begging and we didn't, you know, why some kids are hungry. And I remember asking my parents, you know, why, why is this? Like, why do we have food and they don't? And I think one of the first memories that I have of that, that's, you know, in, in a place like Peru or Mexico, those of you you've been, it's, it sort of happens uh, quite a bit. This, you're in a car somewhere and the car stops in traffic and a little kid comes over and sort of puts his hands or his face, you know, on your window and is looking at you. I mean, they're begging. They're begging, they want, you know, they want help. And they're looking at you. And I remember being seven or eight, nine years old and seeing um, and sort of, uh, sorry, I was going to say something about a cell phone. No, but anyway, no cell phones then. But seeing, looking out the window and, and seeing this kid sort of looking at me uh, and again, not understanding why, why that was so. so. So I cared and I asked and I tried reading the papers very young. I remember reading Time Magazine from cover to cover when I was like nine years old, uh, a bit weird, obviously. Uh, in hindsight, it's funny, when you're a weird kid, you don't think you're weird necessarily, but in hindsight, you think, wow, that was a weird kid. So uh, I was about 10 or 11. I got into my head that uh, the situation in Mexico was extremely unjust and it was time for a revolution. And so I started basically thinking, so how would one start a revolutionary movement here? And basically, in hindsight, again, I was like 11. I thought something like what became the Zapatista thing later was a solution. And I started talking to a couple of people. And again, when you're 11, you don't understand why people don't take you seriously. When you start a revolution, you're 11 years old, it's time. They don't take you seriously when you do that when you're 11. Uh, and so years passed, uh, still um, caring, reading. Went uh, back to Israel for high school. Um, how to go to the army in Israel. Uh, it's compulsory for three years, still. Women, two years, men, three years. Um, so how to spend three years in the army. And then I think um, the next piece happened that, that I think was really sort of influential in, in where I am now, sort of led me and says directly to where I am now, which is, uh, you know, you, you spent th these years in the army, and one thing I had to do in my unit was spend these months and months uh, on the border uh, with Syria, you know, Arab country. Uh, there's a big border, this kind of thing you see in the movies, uh, fence, landmines, you know, electrified fences, that kind of thing, and all you do all day, you're in this big tower, and all you're doing is watching through binoculars for about eight hours a day, you can't read, you can't do anything. You're supposed to be watching for eight hours a day. And what you're watching really is this other tower about a mile away where there's a soldier watching you eight hours a day. You're like, um, and that's sort of all you do uh, all day. Fascinating. So, um, so I was about 19. I was like doing this day after day after day. And of course, all you do really is fantasize, basically. I mean, that's what you, I mean, what you want to do. You're 19 years old. I won't tell you all my fantasies, but you're 19 years old. You're up on the tower and you're, you know, smuggling a book up. You're fantasizing, you're dreaming. And then one day, I was just thinking about some stuff, and this, this thought hit me, it was sort of this flash, and I remember sort of laughing out loud. And, and the thought, because it was sort of a childish idea, but it completely sort of hit me and remained with me. And the idea was that, um, you know, when you join the army, and, and later on you realize probably when you join any kind of, of system, very quickly you, you spot certain people that you feel, I can trust this person. This person is sort of my kind of person, I can trust them, they'll replace me on time when I'm on watch, you know, they'll, they're okay. And then there's the other people who maybe I can't trust them as much and you get to know them and you maybe change your mind or not. But basically, you divide the world in some way into the good guys that are sort of people that you can trust and the ones who are not sort of that good. And you know, the way I've told people sometimes in, in the kind of unit where I was, you had these people who would happily give you their last pair of you know, dry socks and people who would actually steal yours if they could, if you weren't careful. So you have to sort of watch out for both kinds. And having sort of divided the world that way in my mind, I'm up on this tower 
and it was, I think it was Friday, and I think the, the, the Muslim uh, Arab soldiers had a day off, and they were playing soccer or something. I was watching them through my binoculars. And, and what happens, you know, it's a pretty sad sort of long story, but when you grow up in a, in a country that is in a long conflict with, I think, over the world, if you have a, some kind of sort of death and life, life and death conflict, you're brought, up, you're brought up to see the other side as the enemy. I mean, you don't really think of them as a human like you. You know, they are Arabs, they are Jews, they are Muslims. That you, you first see the Muslim, and then maybe you remember that they're human too. You, you first see the Catholic, and then, oh, they happen to be human as well. So what you see are these Arabs. And so one day I was, you know, I was looking at the binoculars, and I'm thinking, wow, they actually must have exactly the same situation that I do. When they join their unit, probably there, there are also these guys who are really helpful and who they can count on. They're probably good guys and bad guys too, there, just like us. And so then that all happened in a flash. I thought, wait a second, this whole situation is crazy. There's a fence here that's running between us. It's a completely sort of irrational situation. The fence should actually run like this. If we have to divide people, and so the, the quick thought was, you know, if there's a war one of these days, I might have to go to war, some politician might decide, and I might have to go and shoot that guy even though I don't know anything about him. Maybe he's a good guy, maybe he's a bad guy. The fence should run like this. Good people here, less good there. If I, I don't want to ever have to shoot anyone, but if I have to shoot somebody, the two guys I know in my tent who I'd be happy to shoot, not him. So anyway, so as a sort of sense of like, this whole thing is weird, uh, there must be a way of reaching across borders, there must be a way of getting people um, together on both sides. And that just sort of stayed with me. And then um, finished the army. By the way, one sort of intermission here. How many people in the room, no idealist, have been on the site? Okay, so I won't spend too much time explaining it. Great. So, um, and Greg said, I guess, so it's a big, it's a big online meeting place with people around the world that want to do good things um, across borders. So, um, so then I, I um, finished the army and there's this, there's this custom in Israel where people go traveling for like six months or a year afterwards. Uh, so I went off for like two and a half years. I was a little bit nuts. I went off to South America for a couple of years and um, had to sort of decide what to do with my life. And, you know, I have a Jewish mother, you need to be a lawyer, go study something, do something. So I was away for two years, you know, don't, you know, leave me alone. Uh, I'm traveling here um, and trying to figure out what to do. And, and while I was traveling, I was seeing more and more situations all over the world. Uh, I went to Europe first, then South America, where I felt something is wrong here. You have all these resources, you have all these problems, you have all these people, you have goodwill. Something is missing in terms of getting them together. And so, for example, one, one very strong example that, that I remember was um, I was going through Greece, um, I guess, on the way there, and there was a big um, shipping crisis around the world. And on the Greek coast, they had all these ships that were just parked, hundreds of them. You could see them from the train, weren't being used. Then I met this sailor who was unemployed, and he told me, you know, the thing about being unemployed, yeah, you don't get paid, but what I really want to do is sail. I don't really care. My identity, I mean, I just want to go and sail a ship. And I read in the paper the next day that there is this big uh, drought in Ethiopia. People are starving. And in Iowa, they're burning wheat because they want to keep the price up or something, or throwing it away. So, you know, I'm 23 years old. I'm thinking, well, why, you know, what's going on here? Why can't somebody send a ship with a sailor to pick up the wheat and deliver it? Something is, is wrong, basically. And of course, you know, you're young, you just say why. So, um, so I was wandering around South America thinking about these kind of things. And then one day, it was just like trying to figure out, so what do you do with your life, what do you do with life? And one day it became clear to me, I was going to find a way of making those kind of connections. Now, how, who knows? I was 24, didn't know anyone, uh, didn't have any money, but somehow I was going to do this. So I sat down in this coffee shop in, uh, in Peru, in Cusco. Has anyone here been to Cusco? Machu Picchu? Anyway, sat in this coffee shop in Cusco, this beautiful town, and thought I'm going to write down this little thing. It'll take me two weeks to write down uh, this book or this thing 
uh, about how to change the world now in steps. So I sat down, thought it was going to take me two weeks, um, and for the next three years I could have sworn that in two weeks I'll be done, which is weird, but it took three years uh, to finish something, which fortunately did not get published. I have it in my closet. It's, it's okay. Um, I was 24. It's sitting there. But I thought through about, you know, what, what is wrong and what, what one could do. And the, the specific thing that was driving me nuts was this idea that, um, you know, I was in Mexico a couple of years ago uh, for, for a conference, and someone told me that in Mexico City, there are now 93 different NGOs, uh, nonprofits, dealing with AIDS and HIV. That was two years ago. I'm sure there's 114 now. But there were 93 then. And I could understand, I just couldn't understand, I guess, I was too young, I didn't understand issues of ego and conflict and differences. Why, why couldn't there be more collaboration? Why aren't people working more together? Why, you know, how can we do more of what we have? And so I was trying to think this through, and I'll make this part so short, spend the next few years trying to uh, think through how one could do this. And I had to make a living, so I was a waiter, I was a translator. Then a friend of mine in Israel uh, started a software company. And he had four or five employees, and he started selling some software. And after a couple of years, he began um, exporting it to Europe. So he asked me to come over, I was doing freelance translation, and he asked me to come over and translate his manual to, to, uh, to English, so I, I did. And while I was doing that for a month or two, he kept coming over and sort of bugging me and saying, can you look at this fax I just wrote and help me, this was faxes, this was 85, 86, 87, 88, uh, can you fix this fax that I, that I wrote? So I would fix this fax. And then when it was over, he said, you know, you should stay with us and you'll be our international marketing manager. Okay, so I knew, I hadn't gone to school, I knew nothing about marketing, I knew nothing about computers, but I could spell in English. That, that was the big thing. So I could spell in English, and therefore, uh, I am the international marketing manager of this new company. So I'm obsessing about how to change the world, and he sort of knew that all along. It was very supportive that one day I'll probably leave him and go do that. But in the meantime, distributors have to be appointed, contracts have to be signed. And in hindsight, I'll tell you more about it later. I mean, that was, in hindsight, an amazing thing, because what happened was that I learned all the mistakes, or at least some of the mistakes, that one could make later in the nonprofit side. I learned, um, you know, it's interesting, when you start a nonprofit, um, someone starts a nonprofit, gets a big grant, off they go. How are they supposed to know how to hire someone, fire someone, sign a contract, do a lease, uh, whatever? Uh, so it was great to work in a company for a while. Did that. Uh, after four years, I decided, okay, it's time. I'm going to go realize my dream now. I sort of had a sense of what I wanted. This was 92. Um, I had come to New York for uh, some conference. Again, fell in love with New York. Came, <laughs> came to New York on a beautiful week in October. So yes, fell in love with New York. Uh, did not come in August, uh, moved there, took, so I had, I had my, um, I was 31, I had my life savings of 2,000 bucks, basically, uh, no green card, didn't know anyone in New York, in the States, but was certain that somehow if I came here and talked to the right people, uh, everything would be okay, we'd be able to start a nonprofit that would get the whole world together. So, um, so I came to New York, talked to some people, of course nothing happened, after two months I had 10 bucks left, I'm a natural procrastinator and I sort of waited, I thought, I have 100 bucks. Do I look for a job? Nah. So I waited. When I had 10, I thought, okay, maybe it's time to start thinking about what I'll do next. And so then uh, my friend from Israel, the company had grown, came for a visit, and by that time we had uh, distributors all over Europe. I said, you know, I think we need a U.S. subsidiary. I think we need a U.S. office. So that became my, my job. Opened an office um, in New York at the time um, with one person. That, that thing has grown. It now has about 60 people in the U.S. I think. The, the company as a whole, just a sort of side note, you guys are um, MBA students, most of you. So the company was five people when I joined it. It's about 400 people now. Uh, they're all over the world. They have sales about 80 million right now. And the US is about 20 million of that. They went public in 93, which is an interesting process to participate in as well. Um, that was just a good learning experience. And so I kept sort of doing that for a while. 
and still sort of obsessing about this thing. And then 93, 94, a friend came to my uh, house one day and um, dialed me up. I was using a dial-up for email and showed me this thing called a web browser. Okay, there's this thing called a web, he said. Okay, cool. Uh, and you use a browser to navigate it or something, whatever, whatever the word was. And he pulled up this thing. Um, it was the first ever browser, almost the first ever browser. It was a thing called Lynx. Most of you, I think, probably don't remember it. It was a text only. It was a text only, just lines of little text. And the links, uh, the words, basically just like shown. The, the, it was like this shining thing. And so he had this thing, and he went to a word, and he clicked on it. And when he clicked on it, it went somewhere else. That's all. And I thought, oh my god. Someone has created something just for me. Like, I've been waiting for this for 10 years. This is amazing. Now, in fact, you could actually connect two things, two people, whatever. So, um, so the following summer, uh, that summer, I, I said, okay, well, Someone, there are all these websites coming up, and someone clearly must have created a place where you could find all nonprofits because I want to talk to them. So I tried to find it, and there was no such thing. Yahoo had just been created. Uh, this was early 95. And so I said, well, there isn't a place where all nonprofits are gathering, then there should be. So I found a couple of interns from uh, Columbia Barnard and sat them down for summer and said, go find every nonprofit website uh, in the world. So they did. They did. I mean, we're sort of obsessive, and, and it took two months. We found, in hindsight, not bad, we found 2,500 uh, nonprofits in the world that had a website 95. We were, when we launched it in September, we decided that no matter what, we're not gonna launch a thing if it doesn't have 50 states on it, all 50 states in the US, plus about 100 countries, just links, but arranged in a tree of issues and, and stuff like that. So we found, you know, we looked and looked and looked. And I don't know if you, uh, I'll make you a bet. Is there anyone here from North Dakota? Of course not. Have you ever met, does North Dakota exist? I mean, it's an amazing thing. <laughs> You see it in the map, so when you try to do anything in this country where you want to actually complete the list of 50 states and have something in all 50 states, North Dakota will kill you. There is, there is no one, I want to go one day because I don't, I don't believe there's actually anyone there. So anyway, we, we, it took us like a week, we postponed the thing for like a week or two to find one North Dakota, we found it, uh, and launched the thing with all 50 states and, and like 100 countries. And then, th this was early 95, launched a site where you could, again, navigate all these links. It took about six uh, months only to realize that, um, that this was extremely insufficient. I mean, you could navigate, you could sort of click on links, but you couldn't really do a search. And again, we're talking 95. I mean, there are no spiders. There is no, like, again, those of you who remember, there was this thing called Alta Vista that came out like in 97, the first web spider. But all you had were links. And so you are a nurse, you speak French, you want to go to Africa next summer. What do you do? Just click around, not sufficient. So at the same time, the first interactive sites were coming out. Suddenly, you could actually track your number of FedEx. Amazon came up. You could do a search. So we thought, well, wait a second. Why shouldn't there be a nonprofit directory where nonprofits could upload information? Again, it's funny. I remember um, sitting out with a programmer at the company and asking him if he thought that would be possible. And I mean, the whole concept of a password, like what was that? And the whole idea, I said, you know, would we, and it's funny how I even asked. I didn't ask if it would be possible to have a database online where people could come and enter their information. Because even that I had never seen. There were no forms in 94 on the web to go and like enter stuff. So I remember, I remember the way I asked, I said, would it be possible to have something online where people could email their information in? And he said, no, there's this thing called CGI, it's a form, you can, okay, great, let's build it. So build this thing, um, didn't have any money, we built it with like 3,000 bucks on an old P70 server and launched it. And immediately people started using them as obvious. And that, that became idealist. I mean, everything that's on there now the ability for nonprofits to post anything, people to find it. Um, that became the site, and that sort of started going. So then, 
Then uh, quickly, you get into this whole business nonprofit thing. So you launch this thing, it's, it's successful. Successful, for example, in the sense that very quickly, this little Pentium machine is getting so many hits that no one can use it because it just slows down and any search takes two minutes. So I'm thinking, because I know nothing about the nonprofit world, <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm thinking, well, if this machine that costs you know, a couple thousand dollars it becomes unusable because so many people are using it, clearly replacing it with a $10,000 server, it wouldn't require any more staff, it could just serve you know, hundreds of many times more people. Clearly, a foundation would fund that immediately. Clearly, one of the, um, one of the tech company foundations would clearly fund that immediately. Yeah, so anyway, so that's the, the, the learning experience starts. And just a couple sort of pointers there, business nonprofits. Most of you have worked for a business sometime, I imagine. How many people have worked at a nonprofit here? Okay, so um, you start, you know, I start stepping from these two sides and I quickly find many things. One is that going to the foundation world, especially in those days, first of all, they've never heard of the web. This is 96, 97, 98. Um, they literally don't even have websites. And you go and you talk to them, you said, you know, we have this directory of websites and stuff. And you realize that you're talking to someone who you're saying, well, this amazing idea, it's called TV Guide. And they say, TV, what's that? Well, okay, let me back up for a moment here. So a directory of websites, no. So no web, but second, much more fundamental stuff. You find out that you have an idea and you wanna sort of sell it to someone, you wanna meet with someone. And it turns out it's really hard. It turns out there's no real mechanism, there's no pipeline for great nonprofit ideas. Like if you are an actor and you think you're great, you're the new Paul Newman, you go to New York, there are hundreds of auditions every day. Someone will, if you in fact are the new Paul Newman, people would spot you quickly. Uh, you are a designer of a certain kind. You design cars. You go to Detroit, you, there's, a, there's a way in. You wrote an amazing novel. You talk to 10 agents. If it's really amazing, one of them hopefully will recognize that. Nonprofit sector, not like that. You go to dozens of foundations, you go to dozens of nonprofits, and there are all these barriers set up, basically. And it turns out later, much later I realized, this whole idea of relationships. Turns out if you don't know anyone, it's really hard to get in. It turns out that ideas in themselves are far less valid than they are in the business sector, as far as I know. Again, and when I say business sector, I meant, I mean the software side, which is what I knew best, the technology sort of VC world, uh, where actual, you know, Fuqua MBAs actually open mail and look at, you know, executive summaries for new ideas. That's what some of you, you know, could be hired to do. In the foundation world, MBAs don't open mail. Somebody else opens the mail and have little guidelines, and if you don't fit in, that's sort of that and the web doesn't fit in anywhere in 1998. Uh, another thing that was interesting about foundations is that they think about the world in little silos. So, you know, you do youth, you do seniors, you do whatever. Well, what if you want to do youth and seniors together? You would think, and you'd be wrong, that they'd both be interested. No, if you want to do something that interests both of them, neither is interested. Okay, uh, cool, so not a good thing. Then you realize another fascinating thing. Again, this all sounds familiar, I think, to some of you come from the business world, small business world, you realize that people have assistants, which is sort of amazing. Um, again, those of you who have worked for small companies, if you start a company in the US, a real business, by the time you have 10 or 20 employees, usually, you don't have a full-time assistant. Like, what is that? You make your own phone calls, people call you, you pick up the phone. In the nonprofit world, people aren't paid as much, some of them are actually, so they want other perks. And so convincing your board to give you a $30,000, $40,000 raise is hard. It's far easier to convince them to give you an assistant. So they all have assistants, and then to talk to them, you have to sort of get through their assistant, which is sort of fascinating. So that was another piece. 
And then the thing that really I think was I think that the biggest thing to get through and that, that sort of company has ever since, this whole issue of collaboration and competition. Um, in the one thing that, that, I, that I sort of loved and still love actually about the business world is the rhetoric of the business world, I think, is very clean and very clear. So if I work for UPS and you work for FedEx, or I work for Merck and you work for Pfizer, okay, our relationship is completely unambiguous. We are competitors. It's very clear and it's very unabashed. We're trying to get each other's business. We're both trying to innovate, that's what we do. Ironically and paradoxically, and actually I think amazingly, the fact that the relationship is so clear and the fact that we're competitors is obvious to all of us leads to actually amazing collaboration in the business sector, which I'll come back to in a second. So the business sector is actually full of collaboration. In nonprofit world, what you find is that the rhetoric is actually quite opaque and quite gray. The rhetoric is, we're all in this to do good. We're all in this for the peace of the world and stuff. But then you talk, you actually go and meet someone, and you say, let's do this. And they actually say, well, what's in it for us? And you're like, you're young, and you're like, I thought it was for the world, not for you. Well, it turns out they're human, it turns out their organizations have institutional needs, but the rhetoric is, is not clear at all, it's not clean, and then what it does is, it gets in the way of, 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 of collaboration. So I'll give you, I think you know the most, the most I also want to leave time for questions, the most significant example of that I think is, is with us all the time, is that if you take the classic case in DC, in Washington, where you have a business lobby lobbying against a law, let's say, a bill, and you have an environmental lobby, for example, trying to get that bill passed. It's actually pretty fascinating what happens on the, on the business side. The businesses compete against each other. Let's say it's a whole coal industry, just an example. So the whole coal industry has reps there. They are all competing, but they're competing out there in the marketplace. Their marketing guys are paid, or women, are paid to compete. That's what they're paid to do, and they get bonuses based on that. They also have lobbyists in DC who are paid to do something completely different. They're paid to defeat that bill. And that's what their bonus is based on. Defeat that bill, you'll get a bonus. So they actually have an incentive to work together. If they all get together, all of them, and the common enemy is clear, they, it's in their interest to go and defeat the bill. So they will do it. They're completely aligned, and they have no, those lobbyists doing that have absolutely zero interest in differentiating themselves. They have no need to be UPS and FedEx. They're the US shipping industry, and they will defeat that uh, bill. Environmentalists, on the other hand, don't have a differentiation between the, you know, the, the business folk there in VC and the marketing people. They can't, to raise money, they have to be the Sierra Club. They have to be Greenpeace. They can't just be the environmental groups. They have to be able to write you a letter and say, we Sierra Club did this. They can't actually afford to speak in a completely unified voice because then why do we need 30 of them? Wouldn't 29 be enough? I mean, why do we have this proliferation? So in fact, they end up facing each other but they don't work in the same way. These guys must compete, they must differentiate. These guys don't have to, and so therefore you see these unbalanced battles. Uh, of course, I'm making this generic, of course sometimes there's more collaboration, but in, in general, uh, the business sector, again, ironically, um, collaborates more, very often, I think. Uh, you also, of course, have more resources, you have the ability to appoint a VP for strategic partnerships, how many nonprofits can afford that. Uh, last thing about, about this, and then a little bit of the future, is that um, one thing I think is still with us every day, and again, you know, I spend my life in the nonprofit sector, and this is not trying to discourage you from joining or from going back when you're out of school, is that it can be sort of a hard sector sometimes, because again, some things are not clear. The last thing that's not clear, I think, to people, especially young people when they join, is that you have a certain kind of person who, going to school, growing up, has an issue with money, is uncomfortable in some way with money. So they imagine that the way to avoid money in life uh, is to either go to the nonprofit world, 
or to become an academic. Academics don't have to deal with money ever again, right? So you become an academic or you uh, join a nonprofit. And of course, this is completely, completely twisted, as I think most of you know. In fact, very often, the opposite is true. Unless you're in Wall Street, you know, the business of Wall Street is money. I mean, that's what they do. So they're obsessed with the next deal. They, they deal in money, and that's fine. But if you're working at Google, for example, you're a programmer, you're gonna get paid, it's been taken care of, and you're trying to refine the search. I mean, that's what you care about. In fact, most businesses, if they've been around for a while, by definition are being profitable. Otherwise, they would have gone bust. I mean, if they're there, it's because they have money. And therefore, the real obsession is the market, the product, not literally the next paycheck. Ironically, nonprofits end up being obsessed with money. And I've heard of an academic or two who is obsessed about his next grant. That happens. So academics, of course, care about the next grant. Uh, nonprofits care about money. And you then end up with these slightly bitter people at nonprofits who came there because they wanted to avoid this whole thing. And in fact, that's what the sector revolves around very often. They wanted to come for collaboration and never hear about money again. And they come to a sector that's viciously competitive about money. So anyway, so that's, that's a piece that was sort of interesting along the way. I'll spend more, that, more time on that than I meant. But again, you guys are, are MBAs, um, so a piece of that. But all along, it's been a really, again, it's been, I think, to me, it's been fascinating. Because every day, very often, I go back between both worlds. It's been a fascinating sort of to just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and see what you can learn from both and apply and apply to either. In terms of um, the, the, the future, where I think things are heading in, in general, I think, a couple of things first. One is that I believe that we're living in a completely fascinating moment. And I guess, um, I guess if one is old enough, you can always say that. I think it's a truly fascinating uh, moment now. Decade, year, in fact, I think, year or two. I think that there are a whole bunch of trends around the world now that are coming together in interesting ways, and you're beginning to see more and more signs of what happens when they come together. So one uh, trend is political and sort of information freedom. You have, many of us grew up in a world where either true or not, we were brought up to think that the world consists primarily of dictatorships, and that most people don't grow up in a free country. Now, that's actually no longer uh, the case. Most people in the world today live under elected more or less governments, certainly have freedom of information, uh, travel, uh, et cetera. Never have so many people been, excuse me, never have so many people been free to start an NGO, for example, in so many countries. So that's one thing, you have a lot of freedom. Second, you have lots and lots of NGOs, lots and lots of resources. Uh, third, you have this amazing communications revolution, which all of you are aware of. I think some of you may remember, certainly the, the older ones among you, uh, a time when, when you, someone gave you their business cards, that business card only had two lines on it, your address and your phone number. That was it. In the last 20 years, we've added four lines in 20 years, right? Your URL, your email, your cell phone, your fax. In 20 years, we've gone from two lines, and then some people, their IM, their Skype, whatever. But basically, two lines to six in 20 years, huge revolution. You know, a billion people online, two billion people with cell phones, 65 million people on MySpace. I mean, the numbers are just staggering. And so you have this huge revolution of communications. You have freedom. You also have a sense that the world increasingly is facing problems that have no respect whatsoever for borders. So you have uh, global warming, climate change, you have terror, you have nuclear proliferation, you have um, a disease you know, like avian flu sitting there in the background, AIDS is already there. So you have these problems and issues that sort of don't respect boundaries at all. And you have a sense, I think growing as well, depending on the place, of a political vacuum, a sense that, that you can't really look up to certain leaders right now 
telling us what are actually going to do about all this. I mean, what are we going to do about global warming or about avian flu or about uh, terrorism, etc. And so you have a political vacuum, you have lots of communications, you have people in freedom, and these things are beginning to come together in really interesting ways. There was a case um, a few weeks ago in India, um, a young uh, actress called Jessica Lal got murdered uh, in India uh, in a uh, restaurant, I think, bar uh, situation. And it was public. There were 30, 40 people there. Somebody came up to her, had a little spat, and killed her. Uh, everyone saw this happening. The man was arrested. Next day, a day or two later, he was released. He was released because he was the son of a politician who was also rich, and out he goes. And something, you know, sometimes in certain countries you have a situation where people say enough. And so this thing provoked a huge sort of fury in India. But what's amazing is how that thing is being expressed. It's being expressed in many ways. But one way, for example, which is being expressed is that one of the big newspapers in India set up a blog that people can blog into. But the way that you can blog into is through your cell phone. You can text into the blog. And so you have hundreds of thousands of people in India within days. Messages are coming in every few seconds in some cases. And so you have this basically national bulletin board, basically, that anyone on any computer can see, that anyone with a phone can text into. And that's completely, I mean, that would have been inconceivable three, four, five years ago. So where I think we're heading, summarize, is I think we're heading into a situation where, just like that would have been inconceivable uh, four or five years ago, we're heading into a world where, A, yes, some bad things are going to be happening, which would have been inconceivable too. Uh, but I think primarily, I'm actually pretty optimistic, I think, that today, for the first time in history, we can really ask questions, like the question that I posed 20 years ago, why is that ship not being used here to ship wheat over there if that sailor can go? We can ask questions that would have been impossible to ask 5, 10, 20 years ago and actually provide an answer for them. I'll give you only two examples and open for questions. We can ask questions such as, imagine a building anywhere in the world or a street, but imagine an apartment building. In that apartment building, there are 15 floors, and on the 11th floor and the third floor, two people are both looking out their windows and they're seeing something in the street that they don't like. They'd like to change it. Let's say it's a, I don't know, you know a dirty lot. They want to make a garden there. Now, starting something like that by yourself, organizing your neighbors by yourself, is really hard. I mean, you've met some people that have the personality to get up in the morning and you know, do some photocopies and put under every door. Most people don't do that. Most people would be far happier doing it with a friend. So if those two people knew about each other, many more good things would happen. But they're not telepathic, none of us are. So every day you have millions of opportunities of possible partnerships, collaborations, people just don't know. You have five women in some small town in Turkey all five are thinking, wouldn't it be great if our town had a women's center of some sort? Alone, it's hard. With the other four, much easier. Together with a center somewhere who could help them do it, even easier. So how do you make those connections? Today, whether online, whether offline, whether a combination of both, we can ask that question. We, I mean, all six billion of us. We can ask that question and actually solve it. We can say, how do we get to a point where if two people are living two or three blocks from each other and they would love to do something good together, it'd be impossible for them not to know about the other. Today, that problem is resolvable. And you can take it to far bigger things. You can say things like, you look, again, India or Israel, doesn't matter. India and Pakistan, two countries, nuclear race. People on both sides of the border thinking, this is nuts. Our countries could do something better than building nuclear weapons. You have people on both sides who think that. How do they find each other? And then how do they find each other across the border and create a legitimate situation? Working about this together will be legitimate. We're not a traitor. And we both agree on this, but how do you even make that connection? Again, it's possible today. It wouldn't have been possible 
five, 10, 15 years ago, today it's massively possible. So what I see, and what I think many of us see, going forward next year, two, three, four, is much more creativity, much more collaboration, much more excitement, also I think huge risks, because some of these problems, you know, it wouldn't have been possible, um, you know, 50 years ago, certainly 10 years ago, for someone to blow up a city by himself. Today that's possible. So we're looking at problems that also have raised the stakes, but I think also many more opportunities for doing something uh, about them. So I sort of meandered today, uh, business, life, opportunities. Uh, that's what I have to say for now. Any questions that anyone has, I'd be happy to take. Thanks for listening. surprise. My biggest surprise, um, it's also a personality thing, has been how long it took. Uh, that's the, to, to, it, in terms of sort of getting to where we are now, that's been by far the most surprising. Like I, I used to, now actually I think over the last year or two that's shifted. I used to tell people that, you know, there's this thing about uh, Rome not being built in a, in a day. And I used to say, I don't understand why. I mean, why can't you build in a day? Why, why can't, why do things have to take time? And it's fascinating. It's fascinating watching people, you know, 40, 50 years ago, everyone had a black and white television, right? Color television comes out, you would think that within 24 hours, everyone would ditch one and get the other. It doesn't work that way for, for a whole series of strange reasons. And I, should, I got my cell phone, my first cell phone six months ago, so yeah. So yes, things take longer. But anyway, what surprised me is, is how long, like the trajectory was clear to me, like it was clear, I think, where we wanted to go. But for example, Greg mentioned that we have, you know, 60,000 nonprofits on the site now. When we launched the site in 95, 96, I thought we'd have 60,000 in two years, not in 10 years. Things are slower than you think. People move more slowly, institutions move more slowly. So that I think has been the biggest surprise. Uh, what kind of influence do you think the social sector will have on government, the public sector, you know, at different levels, or on multilateral agencies like the UN moving forward? God, uh, I don't know. Um, the UN, well, I'm being filmed. I won't say anything about the UN. No. Um, the, the, I don't know, I think it varies tremendously by country. I mean, I think one thing to look at, and you know, when you, you live day to day to day, it's very easy to, to sort of drown the day and forget some, some big things. But I think if you look at the social sector, if you look at, at civil society you know, as a whole, over the last just, let's say, 30 years, I think you've had some amazing victories. And I think it's important to sort of look at those. And sometimes, you know, I was disparaging a little bit before about, about the way that some nonprofits work. You know, some nonprofits, in order to make money, in order to continue working, have to sell a vision of the world that is negative, right? At least they think that way. I actually think they're wrong, but they think that they have to scare you. Things are, you know, every year the world will end. Give us your money now. And that is not great marketing for stressing your victories, in fact. So, but there have been some amazing victories. I mean, take, take two very disparate examples. Um, you know, you go to Pittsburgh today. Some of you have been to Pittsburgh, and you, some of you have seen pictures of Pittsburgh 30 years ago. I mean, this is, this is night and day. I mean, Pittsburgh had, you know, this big black cloud literally on it. You couldn't breathe the air. Today it's a clean, relatively beautiful city. I mean, that's an amazing uh, victory. Completely different kind of victory. Um, those of you who remember, I said there's more freedom in the world today. Uh, you know, when I was a child, not only did you have dictatorships in, in Eastern Europe or in, in South America, Spain, Portugal, and Greece were ruled by the army. I mean, this is weird today. Uh, they were ruled by the colonels. They were ruled by Franco. 
and Salazar. And, um, and so in one thing that, that you know, most people don't know today is that under Franco's rule until 75, it was illegal to be gay, okay? I mean, you couldn't be homosexual, that was illegal. Okay, a year ago, or last year sometime, Spain was, I think, only the second or third country in Europe that allowed gays to marry. So you are a 55-year-old uh, gay man in Spain. When you were young, you couldn't even be. Today, you can marry publicly. I mean, that's an amazing social sector victory. So I think there's still many battles, of course, that haven't been won. But the fact that people are even thinking in these terms, the fact that the idea of civil society is talked about everywhere, the idea that people expect the freedom to have an NGO, the idea, and, and there's a consensus emerging, you know, those of you who remember uh, watching on television those uh, protests in the Ukraine last year, the big orange revolution right after the election. And then um, there were these big protests in Beirut uh, after the prime minister, the ex-prime minister was killed in the streets. And you could see that the atmosphere was sort of similar and you could get a sense, I wasn't in either place, but you could get a sense that if you went there and spoke to the people, people, there's a certain consensus among such people about, about freedoms that we all deserve, about a dignity that we all deserve, about access to certain things that we should all have. And that it's not anymore a question of, well, we live in Lebanon, so we don't deserve X. No, we deserve that too, basically. And so I think that's a positive direction too. Touched on it before. The social networking sites are massive: Facebook, MySpace, yep. uh, LinkedIn. What do you think the realistic prospects are for just a, like almost a grand alliance of these of these sites with massive numbers of users for um, a, a big network for people who identify themselves as social entrepreneurs and social change agents? I don't know. I honestly don't don't know. I mean, there's a, there's a strange. If you go, uh, yeah. There are two places, um, you, you guys, I mean, the names Omidyar and Skoll are familiar to you? So Omidyar is the founder of eBay, Skoll was a guy who worked there for the first year or two, one of those interesting accidental billionaires. I mean, he was there for a year, Meg Whitman came in, he's a billionaire, great. So um, Skoll has a, oh my God, okay, so, so <laughs> that was my last grant from Skoll. So um, Skoll uh, has a foundation that we're trying to renew a grant there right now, and um, Omidyar has a foundation, it's called the Omidyar Network. Now, both of them have launched places that try to do this. If you go to Omidyar um, Network, I think, .org, uh, you click in there, they've launched this place. It's a very complex, actually, site uh, that tries to do interesting things like if you make a good comment, people give you good points, stuff like that, to try to sort of raise good ideas up. Uh, Skoll has a thing called socialedge.org. Again, trying to meet people online. It's difficult, it's interesting. It doesn't work for whatever reason. Um, it doesn't work in the same way. It's not entirely true, it's not entirely clear why. Why RISE, those of you who know RISE, R-Y-Z-E, why that takes off, and again, there's something with the culture of networking, the culture of collaboration, the culture of valuing the time it actually takes to make contacts, as opposed to just being busy, busy, and at the same time, the constraints of the nonprofit world. I mean, you're, you're, so I think it's heading there. How big it'll be, I don't know, I have no idea. It'll take longer than people think. No, how long, I, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, you had a question. Yeah, I guess my question comes from back when I was kind of searching for jobs and was in the nonprofit sector. One of the problems that I found was that I could never really tell what nonprofits were good and what nonprofits were not operating that well. And in the kind of for-profit sector, you know much more about an organization and even if it's operating well and things like that. And, and the underworld of the nonprofit world, I mean, the whole world is word of mouth about yep. how things go. And some things look great to funders, but tell the work there. And 
So those kinds of, how does idealists address this or have you guys decided to stay out of that arena to remain unbiased or just kind of, how, what are your thoughts on this? Because that was something that always kind of. Well, my thoughts, first of all, is that there are just great observations, I mean, first of all, honestly. I mean, and you, I think you, you sort of touched on two or three different things. One is that um, for reasons that I don't completely understand, the business world, you know, if you go to any airport and you go to a newsstand, you have dozens and dozens of publications, right, that cover the business world. And all of you, I mean, it gets, it gets crazy, right? I mean, there, there's, um, you know, Ad Week and Brand Week. And I think in New York, I saw recently, there's a thing called The Deal or Deal Day or something. Nothing but... I mean, it's like 50 or 60 pages long, and it's daily, and it's just M&A. So, I mean, the stuff gets info week. I mean, it gets very, and so you have thousands of reporters covering these companies, both business, also gossip, who saw what from whom, and covering stuff. And it's not clear at all to me why the nonprofit world that has 10 million people in it uh, has the chronicle of philanthropy. I mean, that's sort of it, uh, the nonprofit times. And uh, she's laughing, she knows both. I mean, these are sort of really not, huge publications. There's no such thing as um, investigative reporting in the sector, really. It's interesting, even when it happens, you know who's best at it? The Wall Street Journal. It's interesting. They have the best nonprofit beat research uh, out there, which is sort of fascinating as well. And so that's one way in which you can't really find stuff out. Another thing that happens, which is less, I guess, glorious and also but, but less public, is that um, in the business world, again, because of all kinds of reasons, uh, people talk very publicly about good and bad of other businesses, right? If you, one of you here, has worked some time for Microsoft, for example, maybe, or for any other company, any other company, forget names, you have no problem at all raising your hand and saying, that actually sucked, I was disappointed, uh, they were not very ethical, they were lazy, whatever. And, and also, forget about a place that you worked. If I tell you right now to raise your hands and let's quickly brainstorm the 10 worst companies we know, all of you together, Okay, it's easy. You guys, it's interesting. You guys have no fear, I think. Let me if I'm wrong. You have no fear of naming companies that you think are just terrible. Uh, nonprofit world is different. It's interesting. People are extremely reluctant to say bad things about others. The generous way, in public, okay, behind your back all the time. In public, people are very reluctant to come out in a setting and say, this organization is not great. That executive actually is lazy, uh, whatever. People don't do that, and they don't do it, I think, one, the charitable interpretation is that you sort of wash your dirty laundry, you know, at home. Eh. I think a far less charitable one is people have long lives, people have long memories, you never know where they'll end up. It's a very incestuous sector. Why make enemies? So people don't really say much, basically. Also, if I talk about you, you might talk about me. All not very nice answers. Actually, the worst, I think, the, less, the least sort of generous aspect of that when you, is that the coin actually is also flipped. People don't say bad things about others very, very often. People actually don't say great things about others either, which is infuriating. If I told you to do the opposite, tell me about the great companies you know, you'd be like, come on, you know, great stuff. Nonprofit people, again, generalizing grossly, by and large, there's almost like a sense that somehow it's a zero-sum game. And if I say good things about you, you'll rise in the world and somehow that'll take me down. It's very weird. It's very difficult to get nonprofit people in public to say either great things or bad things. And therefore, it's hard to do what you're trying to do, what you want to sort of be doing. Long answer to your question. It's a really complex uh, problem. So yeah, word of mouth, more things like bulletin boards, more things like people being able to share. Then you get into complex issues of you know, one complaint versus 10 compliments, really hard. I think the more research you can do before you get to the job, 
the better. And staff will tend to talk, basically. Also, I think, honestly, just like any, this is all sort of workplace advice, visiting an office, I mean, when you, when you go to get interviewed, you know, look around, look at people's faces, look at people's, you know, are they happy? Do you hear a laugh somewhere? I mean, is it like, is it that kind of place or, you know, not? Sorry for the long answer. Yeah, go ahead. You know, an Israeli writer, I'm sure you know, Amos Oz once said something quite wonderful. He said that pessimists always walk around with a big smile on their face and optimists always have a frown because pessimists are always so wonderfully surprised about how much better things are than what they thought. Oh, and, okay. And uh, so, so if I'm going to ask a kind of dark question, it's because I'm kind of an optimist. Um, the thing that really troubles me in the scenario is that when, when I think of those two people sitting in the windows, you know, looking out on the street, if it's their kids and they have broadband at home, they're probably not looking out the window at all. Um, and I'm trying to come to terms with, I don't think we have yet, with the social impact of the very technology that empowers us to do so much good stuff together, also, I think, creates a kind of technology cultural environment in which we are actually more and more and more emotionally disconnected from one another. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but the point and click culture is, I think, degrading our capacity to have confidence as human beings to achieve things in the world. I mean, it's too easy, you know? It's, the computers aren't dangerous because they're getting as smart as we are. We're meeting them halfway, you know? And, and I think there's, a, there's, there's some kind of problem here that the optimism does not quite address. And I, I wish you'd speak to it because I need to be cheered up. Oh my god. Well, first of all, I thought you said that pessimists walk around with a smile on their face because they're like right all the time. Told you, told you, things are wrong. So no, OK. So um, God, cheer you up on that one. Look, I think I, I try not to worry about things I can't change. So I can't change that people at home have access to a computer. I mean, some things, of course, um, sadden me. You know, as I was growing up in Israel as a kid, and um, it was a kind of thing, again, depending on where you grew up, the, the, the streets, you know, after school, every day, uh, between basically one and eight, the streets would be occupied and ruled by young children. I mean, cars couldn't drive. Children were playing soccer in the street. You would come home from school, you would throw your bag, you would leave your house, what was it to do in, in a small apartment in the summer in Israel? It's hot. It's a two-room place. What are you going to do? You go out into the street, uh, and you spend your day socializing, living, and when night falls, you come home for dinner, maybe. But you're outside. It was interesting. When I, when I first came to New York, you know, there's a slogan in the States that still drives me nuts, this idea in youth work, work of keeping youth off the streets. And I've always thought, that's nuts. Kids belong in the streets. What do you mean keep them? Where are they supposed to be? They belong in the street. The street, and, and it, it gives me amazing satisfaction. You know, Cusco, for example, in Peru, it's interesting also when you go back in time, I'm going to a poorer country. Like, I love being in cities where you get a sense the city is still owned by the kids. 10, 11-year-olds own their city. Um, Annie Dillard has this great uh, book about growing up in Pittsburgh. And she said, when I was five years old, my parents gave me an amazing gift. They gave me Pittsburgh. They gave me a key, which I tied around my neck. It was a key to my house, she says. And from that day on, I knew that I could go anywhere, because when I came back, I could open the door. She was five, and she was launched on her way to explore her city. There was a sense that it was safe, and, and five-year-olds owned Pittsburgh. And so that has changed for all kinds of reasons. People, yeah, people are inside. 
I think the hunger for community is still there. I think the hunger for doing things together, the hunger for face-to-face -face stuff is still, I think, very much uh, there. And so, I don't know, I think you have the potential now to sort of do things which you couldn't do before. You can meet many more people than before, clearly. Uh, if you want to, you can go out and see them. Yes, some of the stuff has changed you know, dramatically. I don't think it's, in some ways, I don't think it's coming back. I think some of it has probably changed for the good. Um, I think I'll, I'll end with one, one small thing because I'm sure you think. I, I love the fact that, and I'm still sort of, this was a recent thing, so it's still in my mind. Um, I love the fact that today, the, the fact that today on the web, or an email specifically, you can suggest something to someone. And if you get an email from someone suggesting something or bringing you an idea, all you have is that text on the screen. And you can, in, a, in that sense, judge that idea objectively. This is not a young person, a small person, a big person. This is an idea. What do I think? And I think, you know, I think the word empowers is being used too much. But I think the idea that basically, if, you have, if you're 14 and you have a wonderful idea that you want to send someone, you can do this. And then later on, they, they can meet you. And I'll end this with a thing. I, I'm curious because I've asked this a couple audiences. How many of you, when you get an email from someone you don't know, all you have is the text? How many of you imagine the person in some way physically behind this? How many of you think this person must be tall or short or skinny or whatever? Do you do that in some way? Sometimes you create an image where by the time you meet the person, you think you know what they're going to look like. Raise your hand. You do that sometimes? Yeah, great. Okay. So about half the people actually do this, which is fascinating why we feel a need to do that. And then, of course, so a couple of weeks ago, I had a meeting with this guy from Colombia. He was, he was emailing me. And his name was something Leclerc, and he came to see me. And I had decided from his email that he was going to be a very large Haitian. I knew he was a French speaker. He, he was going to be a large Haitian man. So in walks this very small Belgian. Uh, and, um, and I look at him, and I say, you are supposed to be a large Haitian. So he looks at me, and he says, you are supposed to be a small Indian woman. So um, um, anyway, so I'll end with that. And uh, thanks so much for, for having me again, and um, thanks for having me.